This morning as we continue our study of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, we have come to what is commonly known as the Golden Rule. It's found in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. It reads this way, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Now, without doubt, folks, this is one of the most well-known statements that Jesus ever made. In fact, it's likely that more people are familiar with the Golden Rule than any other verse in the entire Bible. Even people who know very little about the Bible, they recognize that the Golden Rule is the commonly accepted standard of morals and ethics. But it may surprise you to know that various forms of the Golden Rule, though worded a little differently, are found in a number of ancient writings, both religious and philosophical. For example, Confucius, the ancient Chinese philosopher and sage, he wrote this. He said, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. The famous Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Isocrates, not to be confused with Socrates, but Isocrates, who was also a Greek philosopher, he wrote, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. Now, what's interesting about all these so-called versions of the golden rule is that they're all presented, notice, in negative words. That is to say that they all say what not to do to others rather than what to do to others. And there's a reason for this. John MacArthur in his commentary on Luke explains why these ancient golden rule maxims are given only in negative terms. He writes, the negative versions of the golden rule are the epitome of human ethics, yet they are little more than self-serving expressions of self-love, concerned primarily with obtaining good treatment for oneself in return. In other words, he's saying that each of these pre-Christian golden rule sayings, they're all driven by the same selfish motivation, wanting others to treat them well, they tell themselves to refrain from certain actions towards others only, only because they don't want those same actions done to them. But that is not the golden rule that our Lord declared. Instead of speaking in negative terms, telling his followers what actions to abstain from, Jesus spoke in positive terms, telling his followers what actions to engage in. He said, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And what makes our Lord's statement so unique and extraordinary is that he wasn't telling his followers how to treat other people in general, those across the, the broad spectrum of society. He was telling them how to treat their enemies, those who were hostile towards them, those who hated them, those who despised them. He told them to treat them well just as they would like to be treated. Folks, I remind you that in the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount, these, these golden rule words, they were said in the context, the setting of Jesus instructing his disciples on how to live righteously. In contrast to the Pharisees of that day, the scribes of that day, who erroneously taught that Jewish people should love only their neighbors, those, of course, who they defined as other Jewish people, 
and that they should hate their enemies, those they defined as Gentiles. In light of that, of that error, Jesus said in Luke 6, 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And from there, the Lord proceeded to state exactly what he meant by explaining how believers were to show love towards those who hated them. He told them that they were to do something good, something tangible, something positive for an enemy, something that would clearly benefit them. In other words, don't just ignore them, don't ignore them at all. Think of what they need and meet that need. He told them that they were to bless those who cursed them by asking God to save their souls. And as we explained when we went over this, to curse someone in a Jewish context meant that they called upon God to damn that person to, to hell. What Jesus is saying is that you ask God to do just the opposite for them. They're praying that God would send you to hell. You pray that God will send them to heaven by saving them. The Lord told them they were to pray for God to bless those who mistreated them. And then Jesus spelled out some very specific ways that believers might be mistreated by their enemies and how they should respond to such mistreatment. To those who experienced the mistreatment of being insulted, Jesus said to turn the other cheek, be willing to take more insults. To those who experience the mistreatment of not having something valuable of theirs returned, somebody takes it, they don't return it, Jesus said that you should give your enemy something else of yours. To those who risk being taken advantage of by someone asking to borrow some money, Jesus said, give it to them. And to those who experience the mistreatment of being robbed, somebody steals from you, Jesus said, don't demand your possession back. You see, in all these comments by Jesus about how to love an enemy, the one common denominator that ties them together is that Jesus calls you, calls me, to give up our so-called rights in order to benefit others. He tells you that the way to love those who hate you is by doing something that will actually and clearly meet some need they have, even at your own expense. And that's precisely why Jesus sums up all of these commands to love those who hate us by stating the golden rule, commanding us to treat our enemies the same way we would want them to treat us. But watch this, because what our Lord is really saying is that you are to treat others the same way you want them to treat you, knowing full well that they aren't going to treat you the way you'd like to be treated. You see, that's the point. That's the point that Jesus is making. The reality is that your enemy isn't going to treat you the way you'd like them to treat you. That's why they're called your enemy. Because rather than treat you well, they despise you. This is why they, they curse you. This is why they mistreat you. This is why they insult you. This is why they take away what belongs to you. This is why they rip you off. This is why they do bad things to you. They're your enemy. That's never crossed their mind to do anything good to you. These people are hostile towards you. They have no intention of ever doing something good for you. But what Jesus is saying, more than saying, folks, he's commanding, is that in spite of the mistreatment you receive from those who hate you, you are to treat them the same way you would like them to treat you, even though you know they won't treat you that way. That 
is how you love an enemy. Now folks, this requires that you give some serious thought to what Jesus is saying and serious thought to how this applies to your life. How would you like someone who you can't stand and they can't stand you, how would you like them to treat you? The way you answer that question, that's exactly how you are to treat them. Would you like them to show you some respect? Then you show them some respect. Would you like them to buy you something that you need? Then you buy something for them that they need. Would you like them to speak kindly to you? They've never spoke kindly to you before. You speak kindly to them. Would you like them to take an interest in you and your family? Then you take an interest in them and their family. You ask questions. You find out what's going on in their life. In whatever way you would like to be treated, Jesus commands you to treat your enemy the same way. Now up to this point in this section of his sermon, the Lord has been instructing us on how to love those who hate us, laying out some very specific ways that we are to love our enemies. And then, summing up his teaching about how to love an enemy, he's given us the golden rule. That is a summation of what he's been teaching. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. But as the Lord continues delivering his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, though still speaking about loving an enemy, he now moves from telling us how to love our enemies to why we should love our enemies. In other words, he wants us to know the reason, the reason why loving someone who hates you is so important, why it's important to him and why it should be important to you. And essentially, what Jesus tells us is that there's really only one reason why we are to love our enemies, and that is because as God's children, we are to reflect God's love. Beginning with verse 32, Jesus states this, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Now, notice, in each of these verses, Jesus tells us basically the same thing. He tells us that if we only love the way unbelievers love, then there's no credit in that, meaning there's no benefit to that. There's no value in that. And how do unbelievers love others? Their love, Jesus says, is a selfish love. It's a love motivated by the expectation that they will be loved in return. As one person put it, unbelievers love with a give-to-gain mentality. In other words, they only love because they hope to get something back in the deal. That's why. Now, before we look at some of the specific ways that Jesus said unbelievers love one another, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how the Lord refers to these unbelievers. Notice, he calls them sinners. But understand this. That in calling them this, Jesus isn't saying that only unbelievers are sinners, but not believers. He's not saying once you become a Christian, you're sinless. Not saying that at all. That would contradict what the New Testament teaches. Long after the Apostle Paul became a Christian, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. He didn't say, I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. In fact, 
we are more aware of how sinful we really are after we're saved than before. We are simply saved sinners. So if that's the case, then why did Jesus call unbelievers sinners if everybody is a sinner? Well, the Lord is using the term sinner in this context to speak of those who are unregenerate, unconverted, those outside of his kingdom in contrast to those who are believers who are citizens of his kingdom. But it actually goes a bit deeper than that because in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew quotes Jesus as identifying the type of sinners the Lord had in mind when he spoke about unbelievers loving others. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, we read these words. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now here Jesus refers to these unbelieving sinners who show love to others as tax collectors and Gentiles. And the significance of this is that these people were considered the lowlifes of society. People on the lowest moral scale in the community. When he's talking about tax collectors, he means Jewish tax collectors. And these people were notorious for being greedy, corrupt crooks. As well as traitors who worked for the enemy. They worked for the Roman government and they stole from their own people. They were despised by the Jewish people. And Gentiles were just outright pagans, idolaters, foreign persecutors, people who lived in total disregard of God's moral and holy standards. And they were scorned by the Jewish people who referred to them as unclean dogs. And the Lord mentions people like this, the moral riffraff of that day, And how they loved others in order to challenge us as his followers to do a better job. A better job in how we love others because there's absolutely no virtue in loving the way unbelieving sinners love. And he demonstrates how these unbelieving sinners love others by two illustrations. So going back to Luke chapter 6 now, we see the first illustration in verse 33 which is that unsaved sinners show love by doing good to those who they know will return their love by doing good back to them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. That is to say, if you love by doing good things for those you know will do good things back to you, then what value is that, because that's the way that evil, unsaved people love others. What the Lord is saying, in essence, is big deal. There's nothing exceptional to loving like this. Even wicked, unbelievers, love by doing good unto those who do good unto them. Second illustration found in verse 34 is that unsaved sinners loan money to those who they know will return the favor by loaning them money when and if it's needed. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Now, I need to clarify this because it's easy to misunderstand something. You see, the the word amount that reads in our English Bibles, it's not in the Greek text. So the issue that Jesus is referring to 
has nothing to do with how much money is loaned and then paid back. That's not the issue at all. What Jesus is talking about is that unsaved people show love by loaning money to others so that those people now feel obligated to loan them money if the need should ever arise. And the point that the Lord is making, again, is that if we, as his followers, if we love the same way so that we only let people borrow money from us so that we can borrow some money from them if the need arises, then we're no better in the way that we love than unsaved people. Again, there's no virtue in this kind of love. Now, folks, don't miss an important point that the Lord is making in both of these illustrations. He's telling us that the people of this world, who we would call non-Christians, unsaved sinners, even the lowest of them, they have a way of showing love. Now, it's true, this is not agape love for sure, but nevertheless, it is a form of love, a form of love in the sense that they do kind and beneficial things to others but only to those who they know will do kind and beneficial things back to them. It is a love for the sake of mutually benefiting both parties. Isn't this the way the world operates? You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do good unto me, I'll do good unto you. This is the way we both benefit. It's good for both of us. Now, something to keep in mind is this. The fact that Jesus speaks of unsaved people loving each other tells us that non-Christians are capable of showing a type of love to others. They are not totally void of love. You see, so often we speak only of what unbelievers in their depraved and unregenerate state are incapable of doing, such as they don't have the capacity to obey God with the right heart motivation. That's impossible. They are dead in their sins and trespasses. They don't have the ability to repent of their sin, to believe the gospel. That's absolutely right. They're incapable of that. And they aren't able to receive and understand biblical principles. Paul said the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. So that's true. However, in emphasizing what an unbeliever cannot do, we can easily overlook what an unsaved person is capable of doing. And what he's capable of doing, according to Jesus, is showing love, a form of love, to others, even if it's the form of self-serving love. Concerning this fact of the unsaved loving others, Bible teacher and author John Stott wrote these helpful words. He said, fallen man is not incapable of loving. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean and has never meant that original sin has rendered man incapable of doing anything good at all. But rather that every good they do is tainted to some degree by evil. Unredeemed sinners can love. Parental love, family love, conjugal love, the love of friends. All these, as we know very well, are the regular experience of men and women outside of Christ. So, unsaved people can and do show a form of love to others. However, as Stott points out, the kind of love that a non-Christian displays, though it may be called love, is actually tainted by evil. Because it's a love motivated by the attitude of what's in it for me. 
It's a love tainted by self-interest. It is selfishness under the guise of love. It's a love that says, I did something nice to you, so you owe me. You owe me one now. Because the only reason they're doing kind things to others is because they know that those that they show kindness to will in turn feel obliged, compelled, bound to show kindness back to them. But that's not the kind of love that our Lord is commanding us to show others. He is commanding us to love not those who will return our love, but rather those who have no intention of returning our love. Why? Because they hate us. That's why. Folks, that's the whole point that Jesus is making in giving us the golden rule and then illustrating how unsaved people love others. He's telling us that our love has to go beyond that of corrupt tax collectors and pagans. Our love is to be exceptional because the way we are to love is by treating our enemies exactly the way that we'd like them to treat us in spite of the fact that we know they're never going to treat us like this. Listen, what Jesus is telling us is that there is no virtue in showing love to others by being kind to those who are kind back to you because everybody loves like that. Everybody in the world, in every culture, loves like that. Even the lowest of sinners show kindness to others simply because they want to be shown kindness in return. And this is how they plan to get it. But as followers of Christ, that's not what you are to do. Your love is to be so much more than the love of an unsaved person. Your love is to be extraordinary. Your love is to be kind. Your love is to be sacrificial in giving to people who hate you, who despise you, who would never think of being kind to you, who would only take from you and not give you anything. This is why Jesus keeps asking the same question over and over in these verses. What credit is that to you? If you love those who love you, even unsaved people love like that. Now, listen, the credit that the Lord is referring to isn't credit in the sense of gaining credit in order to earn our salvation because salvation as we know is freely by God's grace not by any merit on our part. Now Jesus is using the word credit in the sense and I've said this earlier of what benefit is it to you? What good is it to you? Of what spiritual value Is it to you if you love others the same way that unsaved sinners love others? And of course, the answer to the Lord's question about what credit or value is there if you only love the way the world loves is that there is no credit. There is no value when you love the way non-Christians love. Anybody can do that. However, note this. What is of great value is when you demonstrate love towards an enemy because, watch this, when you love someone who is your enemy by treating them well, knowing that you will get absolutely nothing back in return, it's just kindness for the sake of kindness, you are putting on display the power of the gospel. You're giving a powerful demonstration of how Jesus Christ has transformed you. Since only someone who's been converted and has a new divine nature and has the Holy Spirit indwelling them is capable of loving their enemies because this takes the supernatural grace of God. That's something that no unsaved person has or is even interested in having. 
One of the men from church history that I admire greatly is one of my heroes. is an English pastor by the name of Robert Chapman. He lived in the 1800s in the town of Barnstaple, and he was a kind and gentle man. He was one of the leaders of the early Plymouth Brethren movement. This man was greatly loved by many. In fact, Spurgeon, who was a contemporary of Chapman's, said that he was the most godly man he knew. High praise from Charles Spurgeon. However, as Chapman's biographer points out, not everyone loved him because of Chapman's bold witness for Christ There were some who actually despised him. Here, according to his biographers, the story of one man who hated Chapman and how Robert Chapman responded to his hatred in love and the value of doing this. He writes, to be sure, not everyone liked Robert Chapman. One such person, a grocer in Barnstaple, became so upset at Chapman's open-air preaching that he spit on him. For a number of years... The grocer continued to attack and criticize Chapman. Yet Chapman continued on in his ministry and when the opportunity presented itself, reached out to bless the grocer. The opportunity arose when one of Chapman's wealthy relatives visited him in Barnstaple. The visit was more than just a social call. The relative wanted to try to understand what Chapman was doing. When he arrived at the house by horse-drawn cab, He couldn't believe that the well-bred Chapman lived in such a modest home in an impoverished neighborhood. Yet Chapman warmly invited him into his clean, simple home. As they talked, Chapman explained what it meant to live in dependence on the Lord and shared how the Lord always met his needs. As the relative was leaving, he asked if he could buy groceries for Chapman, who gladly agreed. But Chapman insisted that the groceries be purchased at a certain grocer's shop. Yes, the grocer who had so vehemently maligned him. Ignorant of previous interactions between the grocer and Chapman, the relative went where he had been directed. He selected and paid for a large amount of food and then told the grocer to deliver it to R.C. Chapman. The stunned grocer told the visitor that he must have come to the wrong shop, but the visitor explained that Chapman had sent him specifically to that shop. Soon the grocer arrived at Chapman's house where he broke down in tears and asked for forgiveness. That very day, the grocer yielded his life to Christ. We can hardly begin to imagine what God will do when his people truly love as Christ loved. Now the only way that Robert Chapman could love someone who was so critical of him, someone who actually spit not at him, but on him, is because Jesus Christ had transformed his heart. He had transformed into someone who loved his enemy rather than hated him. See, prior to conversion, all of us hated others. It was our nature to hate, and we did it quite well. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He said, remind them, them being the church, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves. He's talking about our pre-conversion days. We also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives, note this, in malice and envy, hateful, hating one 
another. Folks, that was us. Hateful and hating one another. This hateful attitude was what every one of us had prior to our salvation. But now, if indeed you have trusted Christ as your Savior, your Lord, you're different. And one of the differences is that now you show love to an enemy. You have that capacity. You have that ability. And you have that, it's because the gospel has totally transformed you. And that's why unselfish love that sacrifices and gives to someone else, seeking nothing in return, is of great value. Because it demonstrates the power of God to transform a hater into a lover. Listen, if you are polite only to those who are polite back to you, or you treat someone to a meal only because you hope that they will reciprocate and treat you to a meal, or if you invite someone over to your house only because you hope that someday they'll invite you to their house, then I say what Jesus said. What credit is that to you? What value is that to you? Because that kind of love is exactly the way that unsaved people love, doing kind and nice things only for the sake of being treated in the same way. There's no credit. There's no value. But if you are polite to those who have insulted you, if you give your enemy money to purchase some food knowing that there's no way he's ever going to give you money if the need arises, if you invite someone over to your house who has mistreated you and you know he has no intention of ever inviting you over to his house, that, that kind of love is beneficial and of great value because it speaks volumes that you are different than other people. That the gospel is real. It says loudly that Jesus Christ has changed you. That you are a true follower of his, a true child of God. And people will take notice because they've never seen anything like that anywhere else. That's precisely why Jesus proceeded to say what he said next in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. See, that's the point. Expect nothing in return. Contrasting the way unbelievers love, Jesus tells us to love our enemies without any thought of being reciprocated. By doing good things to them, lending them money, expecting nothing in return back from them. And if we do this, notice what Jesus said will happen. And your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. Now, what kind of reward is the Lord referring to? He certainly doesn't mean that we'll get some reward from our enemies by showing them love because he's just said that we should expect nothing in return from them. You're not getting anything from them. So he must be talking about getting a reward from God. Now, usually, when the Bible speaks of rewards for a believer, it is referring to eternal rewards that we will receive in glory in heaven. Several places in the New Testament talk of these heavenly rewards. However, this does not seem to be what Jesus is referring to here. And I say that because of the very next thing that Jesus says in verse 35 as it continues. And you will be sons of the Most High. Now notice that Jesus connects the reward a believer will receive for loving his enemy with being sons of the Most High. And the thought here 
isn't that by loving our enemy we become sons of the Most High, that we become God's children, because that would completely contradict the message of the gospel, which is that we become children of God solely by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross. Here's what we read in John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Speaking of Christ, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now we read here that the only way, the only way that we become a child of God is by receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the Apostle John even defines for us what it means to receive Christ. He says it means to receive Christ in that you believe on him. You trust him. You rely on him for salvation. And when that happens, John says, we become born of God. Meaning that we've become new creatures in Christ so that we now desire to do what God wants us to do. And one of the things he wants us to do is love our enemies. So the question becomes, if Jesus doesn't mean that by loving our enemy we become sons of the Most High, children of God, then what does he mean? Listen closely. He means that those who love their enemies show themselves to be children of God. In other words, when you unselfishly love someone who hates you, though it doesn't make you a child of God, it proves that you're a child of God. It evidences that you're a child of God. It demonstrates that you are a child of God because your character reflects the character of your heavenly Father. And folks, that is the great reward that God gives us when we love our enemies. It's the reward of not only demonstrating to unbelievers the power of the gospel, but also demonstrating that we are God's children because we love as he loves. Concerning this reward that comes with loving those who hate us, one Bible teacher put it this way. He said, the reward in view here is not the eternal heavenly reward, but one in the world of men. When Christians love with the unconditional supernatural love God puts in their hearts, Romans 5, 5, sinners will be astounded. That is love that is foreign to their experience and shows that those who manifest it are sons of the Most High. It validates the gospel's claim to have the power to supernaturally transform those who believe it. So according to Jesus, the reason, the reason that we are to love our enemies is so that we demonstrate to those who hate us that we are like God in that sense that we love our enemies just as he loves his enemies. And how does God love his enemies? Well, notice the last few words of verse 35. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. What a tremendous statement this is concerning the character of our God. Jesus says that God is kind to those who are evil and ungrateful. And that's exactly the case, isn't it? Because in spite of the fact that God bestows his mercy on unbelievers, they continue to ignore him. They continue to disregard him. And they continue to 
just refused to give him thanks for any of his many blessings. So what kind of blessings does God bestow upon unsaved, ungrateful, and evil people? Well, in Matthew's version, again, of the Sermon on the Mount, we get a more complete picture of what Jesus meant. Because Matthew records Jesus saying these words in chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now in these words, Jesus explains how God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. He demonstrates his kindness by causing the sun to rise on ungrateful and evil men, just as he causes the sun to rise on those who love him. And out of the kindness of his heart, he sends rain to fall upon those who are ungrateful and evil, just as he sends rain to fall on the righteous. See, even though unsaved people, they never think about how merciful God has been to them. Never crosses their minds to think like that. They never think that if God withheld his mercy, their lives would not be sustained. They never think like that. And they certainly don't give him thanks for sustaining them, their lives. Nevertheless, God continues to be merciful to them by treating them as kindly as he does those who love him, those who know him, and are grateful to him. Theologians refer to God's kindness towards unbelievers as his common grace. That's not a term found in the Bible, but that is a biblical truth, a biblical principle found in the Bible. Concerning what common grace means, one prominent theologian explained it this way. He said, divine love is indiscriminate love, shown equally to good, good men, and bad. The theologians following Calvin call this God's common grace. It's not saving grace, enabling sinners to repent, believe and be saved, but grace shown to all mankind, the penitent and the impenitent, believers and unbelievers alike. This common grace of God is expressed then, not in the gift of salvation, but in the gifts of creation, and not least in the blessings of rain and sunshine, without which we could not eat and life on the planet could not continue. Listen, When God makes his sun to shine on the earth, and we get a lot of that here in Florida, it warms the atheist just as much as it does the Christian, right? And when he sends rain, it falls on blasphemers just as much as it falls on believers, right? Of course. Now the point that Jesus is making is that when we love our enemies and when we do good things for them, expecting nothing back in return, we resemble our heavenly father and we give evidence that we are his children and have his nature within us because he too loves his enemies by doing good things for them and they like our enemies give him nothing back in return not even a word of thanks I love the way one Bible teacher put this all together what has taken me three to four weeks to explain to you three to four hours of teaching, he said in one sentence. It's a very humbling thing. Here's what he said. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. He said it all. My friends, 
the Lord is commanding us to do what is divine by returning good for evil. When we do this, we reflect God's love by showing kindness to those who hate us. And just to make sure that we, that we have gotten it, that we understand exactly what Jesus is saying, the Lord proceeds to say in verse 36 in words that are impossible to misunderstand. He said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. I mean, that's just impossible to, to miss. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Having just told us how mercifully kind God is to those who are evil and ungrateful, Jesus now very plainly and very clearly tells us to be kind like God is kind. And that's exactly what we do when we show love to our enemies. We show them kindness and mercy. Instead of lashing out in hatred and vengeance, which is what our flesh wants to do, and we all struggle in this area, instead of going out of our way to ignore our enemy, we see them coming, we turn away. No. We are to make sure that we show them mercy by doing what the golden rule says to do, treating them the same way we want them to treat us, even though we know, and I've said this before, right? We know that they're not going to do it. As I've said many times over the course of these last few weeks in studying this section in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord's words about loving our enemies, they're radical. They're radical. They're unlike anything you have ever heard, anything you will ever hear. There's no philosophy that embraces this. There's no religion that really embraces this. It's Christ's radical teaching. Now remember, whatever God commands us to do, he always gives us the grace and the ability to do it. So you can do it. No matter how much you struggle in this area, you can do it. So in light of that, what do we do with this information? Well, you need to think through two issues. One, you need to identify who your enemies are. Now, they may not be people who you are at war with. It could be. But it may be people who you just don't get along with. It may be people you've had a conflict with. It may be people who they don't necessarily despise you, but you know what? You don't like them. They don't like you. You need to identify who are those people. That's number one. Number two, you need to decide how you're going to show them mercy. It's not enough to say, look, I just don't want to have any more dealings with them. It always results in conflicts. No, Jesus said you have to show them mercy. So you need to think through some specific ways that you are going to demonstrate Christ's merciful love to them. So this requires prayer. This requires that you ask the Lord for wisdom. And you give some serious thought to this. And if you struggle with this, and as I said, we all struggle with this, just remember how merciful Jesus Christ has been to you. When you were his enemy, he died for you. So be merciful to your enemies. Not by dying for them, but by doing something to make their lives better right now. Whatever that might be. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I urge you to come to know him. You know why? He is the most merciful loving person in the universe. The most merciful, loving, wonderful person in the universe. And in mercy, his arms are outstretched to you, ready 
to receive you if you'll receive him. No matter what you've thought about him, no matter what you've done in life, he is ready to receive you if you will just repent of your sin, which means turn, forsake your sin, and turn to him, placing your trust in him alone for your salvation. If you want to speak to one of our pastors about this, and just come up to the front, just see me as we close the service. So remember, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Who are you going to show love to? How are you going to show love to them? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words. They are at times hard to digest and apply, but they are your words, and you've given us an understanding of them. Lord, we all struggle, as you know, with loving our enemies, but I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you've given us the ability to do this, to do what perhaps at times we don't feel like doing, but we do it anyway, and our feelings catch up. I pray that you give each of us, myself included, wisdom to know who are those people, our people would consider enemies or uh, just people who we don't like, who don't like us, people perhaps who have ripped us off in the past, who have said negative things about us, and help us, Lord, to know what we can do tangibly to minister to them, to give to them. Lord, may our love demonstrate that we're your children, that we reflect your love for your enemies. Lord, may, may we live in a, in a, and we do live in a dark and evil world, but may we shine as lights, lights for the gospel. May we make an impact in our world so that we, by your grace, can lead some to faith in Christ. And we do pray, Lord, for those who don't know you. Draw them to yourself. Open their hearts. Open their hearts to the gospel. May they see themselves as needy sinners. May they see Christ as receiving them if they'll but turn from their sins and trust him. We ask you to work in their hearts. Bring them to faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.